Live from Earl Palmer Ministries. Welcome to The Kindling's Muse, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Staub. Thank you, everybody, and welcome to the uh, Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Uh, this event is taped for podcasts in front of a live audience at Kane Hall on the campus of the University of Washington. Uh, go Huskies! Their first 9 0 start since 1991, and uh, amazing. We're, we're loving it. Are there any Cougar fans here tonight? There's one Cougars fan here. One brave. There are other Cougars fans, but they are not as brave as that gentleman. But anyway, we do welcome you to uh, our show tonight. Each month, Reverend Earl Palmer selects a book that a thinking Christian ought to read, and he begins with some opening comments, followed by a brief conversation with me, and then we open it up for questions and comments from our live audience here. And tonight, our subject is Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton, and it's based on Jonathan Aitken's book, John Newton, From Disgrace uh, to Amazing Grace. And I have to say, I want to personally thank uh, Earl for choosing this book tonight because it is an amazing story and an amazing reminder of, of truly, you ask yourself, who could write this song? And once you know John Newton's life, you understand the lyrics of this song come completely from his experience and from his own journey and it's a real encouragement to those of us who are, shall we say, less than perfect, uh, because it is about grace. Um, but here to give us his overview tonight, will you welcome Reverend Earl Palmer. Well, uh, we do have this, this book. It's, uh, it's the Jonathan Aiken book, John Newton, uh, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace. And it is really a very fine book. A lot of books, have, a lot has been written on John Newton, but let's ask the question, why should we hear uh, tonight in Kindling Muse, why should we consider the man, John Newton, and, and, and sort of study his life? Well, there's, there's two big reasons for sure. One is the key role that he played uh, in the ending of the evil of uh, human slavery, and uh, he really gets a tremendous amount of credit along with uh, uh, William Wilberforce. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. But the royal, uh, the royal decree or the, the, absolution, uh, the uh, abolishment of the slave trade in 1807 was passed by Parliament and finally passed by the House of Lords and became law in, in the British Isles, law in the whole United Kingdom. And then uh, in 1833... Uh, Following John Newton's death, then the second the great, uh, the great emancipation of of slaves uh, act by Great Britain. Quite a number of years before the Emancipation Proclamation of the United States, quite a few years before uh, the slave trade uh, was called evil here. Uh, but it, we owe a great debt to John uh, Newton for the role he played, and he was the pivotal role. And I'll say a little more about that a little later. And then also, because on January 1, in 1773, when he was a Church of England pastor, uh, John Newton uh, wrote a hymn. Uh, he had decided, uh, he kind of 
when he was ordained as an, an Anglican priest, uh, he had a hard time getting ordained at the beginning because they were worried that he was what they called an enthusiast because he had been so much under the influence of John Wesley and, and George uh, uh, Wilberforce. But Wilberforce and John Wesley had such a, uh, an influence on, on John Newton that uh, the, the bishop that was the bishop in London was not sure they wanted to ordain John Newton, but he was ordained as an Anglican priest. And he broke uh, with a Church of England tradition with regard to singing. Uh, up until that time in the, in the uh, English uh, prayer book, in the English uh, hymn book, the songs were supposed to be metrical uh, renderings of psalms. And so it was psalms metrically sung. And, uh, but a, a man, uh, actually a Presbyterian pastor, uh, about a, uh, several years earlier than John Newton, named Isaac Watts, broke with that, because that was also true in the Presbyterian, the Scottish Presbyterians. They also wanted to sing all the hymns metrically and from psalms just simply sung, and, which is a beautiful tradition. But uh, Isaac Watts broke from that and decided to write narrative songs that would be what he called people's hymns. And so Isaac Watts wrote people's hymns. And of course, the most famous of all was When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the young prince died. Uh, we changed the words to the Prince of Glory, but he wrote it, the young prince died. He wrote this amazing song. Uh, and it, it was not really built on a psalm. It wasn't a metrical rendering of text, but it was the narrative from the, the gospel, and he was so struck with gospel events and then uh, sought to write songs that would be narrative of those events or narrative of experiences that uh, the believers were having. And so that began uh, was a tradition of people's hymns. And uh, John Newton embraced that uh, very warmly. And finally, on uh, one day, uh, the evening before New Year's Day in 1773, he decided to write a hymn. He chose a text, and he, uh, the text was in First Chronicles 17, where David, after having been confronted by Nathan, the prophet, and Nathan had played a judgment role in David's life, and then later a grace role in, in David's life, and uh, announced that he would be the king and should be the king. And then David uh, sings a a song, you might say, in the book of First Chronicles, in which he says, uh, who am I that this has happened to me? Who am I that this could happen to me? And so John uh, Newton decided to write a hymn on that simple text. Who am I that this should happen to me? And it, when, when, you, when we, a little later tonight, we'll look at Amazing Grace and see how it answers the question, who am I that this should happen to me, that I should be uh, blessed by God? So, but let's now talk a little bit about the man and put him in, into focus before we then uh, examine that hymn, which I want us to do in, in a, because it's a marvelous hymn to examine. Uh, he was born, uh, and I do have this wonderful fact sheet, so you have, because I'm going to tell you about these people, many of them, in, in the course of our time together, and you'll see them uh, unfold in front of us. 
But John Newton was born in 1725, and his father was a ship captain, in fact, became a fairly prominent ship captain. His mother, uh, uh, named Elizabeth, was his first teacher, and he was, as a youth, he was recognized by his mother, and maybe, I don't know about his father so much, but his mother recognized him as a brilliant young mind with an exceptional memory. That's the way she described him. But his father, John, who is also named John Newton Sr., was a ship captain who was aloof and severe. In fact, young Newton said this of his father, uh, he, he discouraged my spirit. I was always in fear before him. And that is, a, I, I can't, if you're a father, how would you like it if your, your son uh, gave that as the description of your relationship with this boy? But the father demanded to be saluted when he was there, and he was gone most, most of the time on long voyages with ships. Then he would come back, and he, he ran a tight family, and everything was tightly ordered. And you might expect that a boy from that background where he actually says, uh, when he describes it, that he discouraged my spirit, I was always in fear of him. You, you wonder what uh, direction will a boy like that turn out? How will he go? He might go in the direction of being fearful and maybe very quiet and withdrawn. Uh, but uh, I don't know what his father expected, but his, uh, he didn't get that from this boy. Uh, and this boy went absolutely in the opposite direction the minute he came into his adolescence. He became wild. He became an atheist. His mother was a believer. His father may have been a believer, but his mother was a believer. And, uh, and when he was a little boy, they, they read the Bible to him, and he was forced to... He was, uh, and he learned the Bible, parts of it. But then when he got into adolescence, he simply went wild. Uh, he became a gambler. Gambling was a, a big part of his life. He became totally unruly, and, uh, and he, pay, he paid a price for it, too, because uh, at, very, at a very young age, about age 16, he went in, into the business his father was in as a sailor joined, and, and joined up with a ship, and promptly got kicked off of ships. Uh, uh, he, when he was in the Royal Navy, he was flogged twice. And then he went AWOL and ran away from the Navy. Then they captured him, brought him back. But he had two floggings. He was flogged on, on other ships that he worked, worked on. He uh, had this very, uh, very sad, you might say, uh, and totally disrupted uh, childhood, now moving into adolescence and moving into young adulthood. Uh, and so then when he uh, uh, finally even ha he even has an experience where uh, landing in Africa because he's on a ship and get gets kicked off a ship, uh, one ship he was on, and then he uh, gets into gambling debts and ends up indentured to a trader who trades up and down the river uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Ghana, this country he was in in West Africa, and uh, he he becomes, in, you might say, literally enslaved by this uh, English trader who uh, ha has him in, in so much debt from gambling uh, 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 debts that he's uh, developed that he then ends up kind of in, in a slavery situation for almost two years. 
and he's almost starved to death in those two years. It's just a terrible story. And then his father does come through. At that point, the father finds out that his son is in, trapped by this uh, river trader. And so the father arranges with some uh, other seagoing uh, people to uh, capture his son and rescue him from that enslavement. And I don't know whether the father paid off the debts, but he rescued him from that enslavement and then uh, landed him a job on another ship. In fact, that's when he got into the Royal Navy. The father arranged for him to get into the Royal Navy, but that didn't work out very well, and then finally he ran away from that. But the father finally did get him a job on ships. And so he ends up uh, in, uh, in the slave trade, uh, working, uh, made several voyages on ships that carried the human beings that had been captured in Africa, uh, African uh, young men and, and women. They usually wanted very able-bodied men that they would trap and, and kidnap in Africa, bring them to these great warehouses on the coast, and then the, the slave ships. Slave ships were owned. The, the Netherlands had slave ships, the French had some, and the British had them. And they brought them to the New World. And where they were brought to was the Caribbean. They were brought to uh, several little islands where they were, uh, you might say, uh, uh, receiving stations where slaves would be brought and then they would be bartered and they would then be auctioned in these, uh, in these uh, terrible places. Antigua and San Cruz and then uh, San Kit and these other little Caribbean islands that were what we would call today the, the, the British Virgin Islands facing the Atlantic in the Caribbean. And that's where they were then sold and they would end up in, some would, would be sold and brought to the United States, would be brought to America and be part of the, the, uh, that slave population of America. It was a terrible thing. So he was on several of those ships and, and, and saw that. And uh, then finally, though, uh, his father got him off of those ships, and he went on another ship, which became a, kind of a, a little bit of a turning point in his life, and that was called the Greyhound. And that was a regular trading ship. And the, gray, the Greyhound went to, from, uh, uh, from Africa, it went over to Brazil, and then went all the way along the coast, went up to Newfoundland, got out into the North Atlantic. And in the, on that ship, the Greyhound, they had terrible uh, 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 storm at sea. They almost, the ship almost, in fact, it's kind of ironic and humorous in a way. The ship would have sunk, except they were carrying a cargo that swelled with the water and because the water got into the ship and swelled and, and it was a kind of a balso cargo and beeswax and other things that swelled and literally kept the ship from sinking. But otherwise the ship was not seaworthy, it, was, it would have sunk. And at that point he does have a kind of spiritual experience. He reads in the ship's Bible, this is the, the beginning of the kind of his beginning of conversion in his life, he reads in the Bible the, the line where our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those that ask him? So he read that line, and so he said, help me, I'm drowning, I'm gonna, the, the ship is going to go down. They all, every one of the, 
of the men on board the ship were sure it was going to sink, except the, fortunately the beeswax in the cargo did swell up when the water breached the ship and came in. They, they thought, now we're going down for sure because the water's been breached and coming into the ship, but instead it swelled up the cargo and the ship did manage to get to Ireland and survive. Uh, but to show you how unpopular this young, uh, reckless young man was, that at one point the, the people on board the ship thought maybe that they were, the reason they had the terrible storm was because of this one unruly man that was on the ship that everybody disliked. That was John Newton. And they actually were going to have a vote as to whether he should be thrown, like Jonah, should be thrown <laughs> off the ship. And maybe that would better their chances of survival. But they didn't do it, fortunately. And he ended up in, in Ireland. Uh, and then his father once again steps in and does do a, a good job trying to get him another job. And then he uh, lands a job on another ship. And finally he ends up a, uh, a captain on a, a slave ship called the African because he has now brought his life together, at least in terms of work. What did it was he fell in love with a girl, and he knew he had to be responsible in order to win her parents over, and he had to have money. And the girl's name was Polly, who became his wife for the rest of his life when they finally got married when he was 20. But, uh, so it, that made him more responsible, and, and he, he stopped gambling, and he realized he had to be responsible. So that gave him a job where he was a captain. And he was a captain on the ship called the African that carried slaves to uh, St. Kitts in, uh, in the, the, the New World and Antigua. And on that trip, uh, he had had this little kind of ex uh, uh, spiritual experience on the Greyhound when he, uh, when he prayed, uh, help me, Lord. And he claimed that verse. Uh, if you, you who are evil know how to do good deeds, how much more will your father do good deeds to you if you ask him? So ask him. So he did. He said, Father, uh, help me. And so he did pray that. And, uh, and so he felt he was, that God had intervened and had saved his life. He did feel that. And uh, now he's the captain of the, of the African. It goes to the Caribbean islands, and there he has a genuine spiritual experience. Uh, in, uh, in, that in that trip, he meets a another man who's a, a captain of a non-slave ship that was traveling throughout uh, the world. And that man was a Christian man who was very much against slavery and felt that it was morally irreprehensible. And he won John Newton over on that. Also, a Presbyterian pastor in the Scottish Presbyterian Church that was there in St. Kitts uh, uh, was anti-slave, very anti-slave uh, pastor. And, and here's where, where they had the auction blocks were in, that, in those, two little, those little British islands. And so this captain of another ship had an influence on John Newton, and he discovered the English prayer book. Uh, the, the prayer book of the, of the Church of England. And John Newton then began, that was a genuine conversion. And John Newton now, uh, embittered at the slave trade, realizing that very trade that he had been a, a captain of a ship that was bringing slaves to the new, new world and how horrible that trade was. 
So then he went back to England. By the way, the ships would go back carrying rum back to uh, 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 Europe and to, the, and to Africa and to other places that, where they carried slaves to the New World and then they would carry rum back. So he, he went back, took the money he got, was able then to go and propose to Polly and her parents allowed him to marry her and then, uh, and then he got a job in Liverpool. And in Liverpool, he got a job as a, what they called a, uh, uh, a it's like a dock uh, uh, trader, uh, not a trader, but like a, a harbor master. And he uh, was able to uh, investigate ships when they came into the harbor and check their cargoes, and he got paid by the British government. And it was a good job. And there in Liverpool, he meets John Wesley. And he meets uh, George Whitfield, uh, who is Wesley's assistant. And they were evangelists. And he was now completely won over and becomes a very committed Christian and decides now he wants to be a pastor. And because uh, he had that Book of Common Prayer of the, of the Anglican Church, of the Church of England, and that prayer book meant so much to him, he wanted to become a Church of England pastor. And uh, I told you, that he had a little trouble with the bishop because the bishop thought he was an enthusiast because he was following Wesley. And Wesley was called an enthusiast. And, but they did accept him. And, and, then, and then he got a, 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 some friends who uh, helped him at that point and joined, he joined up with him. And uh, he became a pastor and was sent uh, to a... Uh, a uh, parish north of London in Olney and in that parish uh, a lot of amazing things happened. That's where he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace in that parish. In that parish uh, he uh, uh, became well known in England. People began to come and hear him preach because he was, uh, he was gifted, he was brilliant and was preaching in, 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 that, in that area and uh, finally a young man who was uh, just a teenager came and was drawn as a student. He had, he had been, well, actually, he was more than a teenager now. He had just graduated from Cambridge University, but he was living in London, and he started to come to uh, John Newton's church. His name was William Wilberforce, and he was very young. And he then was, uh, uh, became a very deep Christian. And uh, John Newton... Uh, had a great influence on Wilberforce's life. And Wilberforce decides he wants to become an Anglican priest himself, just like his hero, John Newton, was a priest. So now Wilberforce wants to be a priest. And John Newton does a, a wonderful thing there. He says, no, I don't want you to be a priest. Uh, you're very bright, and you, uh, and you are able to talk on your feet so well. I want you to run for parliament. <laughs> and so uh, he said, That'll be your, that's your mission. Your mission is to run for parliament. And because now they both have decided that, the, that they, they need to, uh, they, need, they have a, a cause that's beginning to develop. And the cause is they've got to do something to stop slavery and stop the transport of slaves from Africa to the New World. And so Wilberforce says, you're a man that can do something about that. I'll be the pastor here, and I'll preach, and then you go to Parliament. 
And that began that friendship, the friendship with Wilberforce and John Newton. And so John Newton has, uh, talks him into going to Parliament. And uh, uh, John Newton writes an article. It's a book. And the title of it is, uh, it's, kind of, it's, it's sort of a, it's not a, a title that would probably sell a lot of copies, but it did. It, was, it's, it went it, all over England. It was called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. Sounds, uh, sounds more like an op-ed piece in the newspaper, but it, he wrote this book called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. And they were able to get every single member of parliament to read that book. And then they had hearings. William Pitt was the prime minister. They, and who was also on their side. And they went at the lower house, the House of Commons, and they were able to get people to read that book. And then John Newton was a witness and came before Parliament and bore witness to what he experienced as a slave captain on a slave ship and what a horrible, horrible injustice slavery is and how it's against God's will, it's against uh, the gospel, it's against the truth of the gospel, and, uh, and so they were able to win. Uh, the, basically, these two men get credit for having swung uh, the House of Parliament to pass uh, with a, a unanimous, almost a unanimous vote in the House of Parliament. Then they had to get it through the House of Lords, and they did get it through the House of Lords with the two great uh, legislations. The one, the ending of slave trade, and the second, the emancipation of slaves. In, the, in all of the British Empire. So uh, that is the, uh, that's, you might say, the great career of John Newton. And uh, by the way, they not only got involved in that, but they also got involved in, 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 the, uh, in another uh, uh, legislative, uh, you might say, crusade. In 1791, uh, John Newton and Wilberforce worked and advanced what was called the Catholic Emancipation Act, or it was called the, uh, the, uh, the Catholic Relief Act, which made it possible for Catholics to own property and Catholics to go to schools. And so here's Newton, not only concerned about the slave trade, he and Wilberforce were concerned about Though they're both, they're both Anglicans, but they're concerned about the injustice to Catholics that's happening in the British Empire. So again, they get credit for that great act that was passed in, in 1833. The was called the Catholic Emancipation Act. First, the Catholic Relief Act, uh, which again, they did. By the way, there's a little funny, funny episode on that one. When Newton was known that Newton was spearheading with Wilberforce that uh, pro-Catholic act and then also against the slave trade act and they got these two things they're working on uh, a group of rioters went in front of his church in Olney and were, uh, they were going to uh, throw uh, uh, bricks and stuff at his church because he was pro-Catholic and they were, they were hollering to him and challenging him as a as, for popery and and for being a, a popist or a papist, and uh, John Newton had the great answer. He said that because he, when they this 
what was called the Protestant League, uh, I'm sorry to say, but the Protestant League met there and said, uh, you're, are you pro, are you for the Pope? Or are you against the Pope or are you for the Pope? And he said, uh, well, the only Pope I'm against is Pope Self. Isn't that great? The only Pope I'm against. Let the Catholic Church have a Pope. We have bishops. Let them call their bishop the Pope. That's what the Pope is, is the Bishop of Rome. But the only Pope I'm against, because they, they were saying, are you against him or not? Because that was the big rallying cry of Protestants then against the, the Catholic Church. Are you against the Pope? And he says, and I love his line, the only Pope I'm against is Pope Self. Well, uh, now back to his hymn. Now, there, there you know the man. Complicated man with a complicated history. Wild youth, everything wrong. And then uh, a, a genuine redemption. A genuine redemption. It happened in two different phases. The first phase, you know, the high sea kind of a when he just desperately asked to not be thrown overboard, and then finally, with, with some friends in St. Kitt, this experience of, uh, uh, of, of, of the other sea captain and the, the, and, the, and the Presbyterian pastor winning him against slavery and showing him that that is the cause that he now must give himself to. So anyway, he had a genuine conversion uh, it was ethical as well as spiritual. And with that in mind, uh, oh, by the way, before I read the hymn, and I want to analyze this hymn a little bit with you because I love this hymn. Uh, can I give you a little bit of, of trivial pursuit? I put, down, I put down another date on your slip, and that is the date of Alexander Hamilton. We now have a great musical on Broadway about this man. I've seen it myself. I know, I, you're gloating. But I have read this book, this amazing book, the biography of Alexander Hamilton, who, by the way, was a very genuine Christian. And uh, now I'm going to tell you a little sequel. Remember I told you that John Newton has a life-changing experience in St. Kitt and St. Croix with a Presbyterian pastor uh, and a ship captain that really won him to Christ and made him a reformed Christian, and also had that ethical impact on him. Well, do you know, 20 years later, in the same town, St. Croix, and the same Presbyterian church, a 17-year-old boy, 20 years later, named Alexander Hamilton, had the same experience with another Presbyterian pastor. That man's name, and it's all in this wonderful book, uh, Chernow's book on Alexander Hamilton, a man named Hugh, Hugh Knox. And I'm a little bit proud of this because Hugh Knox was a graduate of Princeton Seminary. Now, it wasn't called Princeton Seminary then, it was called the College of New Jersey. Uh, John Witherspoon was the first main president of, of, John, of Princeton, the, the College of New Jersey. And this young pastor, Hugh Knox, uh, became the pastor, came from that school, my school, and came to St. Croix and was the pastor of the, of the Scottish St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. And he is the one who discovered young 17-year-old Alexander Hamilton. And if you read this book, uh, uh, Chernow gives him credit for having discovered Hamilton, and it was 
uh, it was Knox, who was the great spiritual inspiration on Hamilton. And Hamilton, of course, uh, was there as a 17-year-old when the huge hurricane came with a tsunami wave and everything that wiped out several of the islands, uh, a great deal of the, of, the, of the buildings on several, several of the islands. And he wrote an article, and it was, it was Hugh Knox who urged him to write the article, which was then published, and it was the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's writing career. And this book tells the story. But I want to read you the opening lines of his article. Where now, O vile worm, is all thy boasting or boasted fortitude and resolution? What has become of thine arrogance and self-sufficiency? This is young 17-year-old Alexander Hamilton. Death comes rushing in on triumph. He's telling about the hurricane. Veiled in a mantle of tenfold darkness, his unrelenting sickle, pointed and ready, and ready for the stroke. See thy wretched, helpless state and learn to know thyself. Despise thyself and adore, adore thy God. O ye that revel in affluence, see the affliction of humanity and bestow your superfluity to ease them. Succor the miserable and lay up a treasure in heaven. That young uh, Alexander Hamilton wrote that. It was published, it just swept uh, it, it swept the, 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 new, the new world and, it, and it, it kind of established him as a young writer. It was no, and notice the, the ethical theme, though. Notice uh, how uh, there are people that are, that, are, that are being treated miserably around you. And as you know, Alexander Hamilton, watching the slave trading in, in that island and also in St. Kitt, became absolutely against slavery came and became one of the founding fathers of the United States and uh, played his role uh, in, in, in endeavoring to, to end that uh, terrible slave trade. But that's just 20 years later in the same place where John Newton had, a, you might say, a decisive life-changing experience that uh, set his course against slavery also in that same church, same island, uh, watching those horrible slave auction box. Uh, anyway, January 1, in 1773, he wrote this hymn. I want, to, I want to analyze it with you just a little bit. First of all, I want you to notice the hymn is written completely in the singular. Uh, the, and it, you could say it, it could be read in the plural, but it's not written that way. It's written singularly. Notice, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. It could have been amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved wretches like us. Though that wouldn't be very good poetry. But it, it could have been that way. But it's, no, it, he totally personalizes it. And I have, I figured it out. Now, when I'm going to read the whole song, and you see if you agree with me, because of that total singularity, it makes the song a song that can be sung with other people and which you feel you're having a comradeship with them because you get to sing. You're not saying we are rich or we are this. I am this. I have to face who I am first. And of course, remember his text was from First Chronicles where the king says, who am I? He doesn't say who is, uh, is uh, Israel or what is Israel that we should have this blessing. Who am I? that I should have this blessing. 
Why? Why me? And uh, that's what John Newton is trying to answer in this great hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Notice he starts with his brokenness. He doesn't start with uh, joy or, or he does start thankfully, but starts with his brokenness. Uh, and then, but then a brokenness that uh, is able to see because God enables the seeing. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. This is interesting that his, he sees that grace is united with truth. And if you, have, if, if you don't have grace united with truth, then it might be cheap grace. But grace that's united with truth has this initial impact. Notice in the second stanza, "'Twas grace that taught my heart," you'd think it would say, "'my heart to be cheerful.'" But no, grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears resolved or relieved. It is God's love, God's surprising act that first showed me who I was and made me feel my guilt and made me feel, and maybe that's, maybe that's again, Newton telling about what happened uh, to him on St. Crew when uh, these folks were able to talk over the horror of slave trade. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." And it took him a while to first believe because he was warring against it. Then he, when, he, when he began to believe, it, it comforted him. Through many dangers, toils, and then snares, uh, and he was a man that had been tempted with gambling and tempted with all kinds of, of uh, uh, acts of, of defiance and uh, uh, you know, wildness in his life. And so he knew what snares were. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Twas grace, or tis grace, has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And now here are two stanzas that we don't have in our hymn book, uh, and I'll t tell you in a minute what happened there. Uh, Yet when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. He sees that there is a, f a grand future that God has in store for, for us. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will forever be mine. Uh, when this song was sung in, uh, in America, there was a, an evangelist in, in the South, uh, and I, I just uh, have now lost his name, who uh, found a tune to go with this song. And that tune was called Plantation, Plantation Song. Uh, it was a South song. Uh, it may have been sung by slaves. It may have been sung by uh, free people in the South. But it was, it was a, by then it became a folk tune. 
And that tune was put to this song, uh, this text, and that tune we now know, Amazing Grace tune. And then the, the Scott uh, bagpipers picked up that same tune and made it world famous uh, all over the world so that it's a totally recognizable tune because of the bagpipers who, who latched on to that wonderful tune. But that tune was added. And then uh, the same uh, Southern pastor added a stanza which we love and use, but notice it's in the plural. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, uh, uh, that we are, we'll never be able to finish singing this praise. Uh, uh, of the Amazing Grace final hymn that we that we use, which is plural, but the hymn that John Newton wrote is all in the singular. It's all singular. It's it's what I'm experiencing, and uh, and that song uh, uh, he uh, gave to his congregation, and they sang it. And as you know, uh, uh, it probably is the favorite song uh, in the world today as far as a knowable song, and you try to think, why is it so loved? And it seems to me it's loved because it is in the singular. And when you're with other people and sing it, you feel, you can, you feel bound to them because they're singing the same thing I'm singing, but they're singing it for themselves. I'm singing it for myself, and we then get to sing. And so then I think it's right that we've added, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no, we've no less place to sing God's praise than when we first began. So then it's, it's, I think it's right that we added, that's an American edition, that edition of the plural. But before you do the plural, it is singular. And that's the song. Thank you, Reverend Earl Palmer. We're going to be back with more of the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, everybody. This is Dick Staub, and uh, thanks for joining us for The Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. An amazing book, an amazing story, and uh, this is a story that uh, is so deep and profound, and I, I think uh, the, the note that you ended on, and on why this is so popular, um, one of the things for those of us in the Northwest, you know, they call this the nun zone, the highest percentage of people in the Northwest declare themselves, when they're asked what religion they are, they'll say none. And it's 25% in the Northwest, and on Orcas Island, it's higher. And, and yet, you can sing Amazing Grace at any event on Orcas Island, and people will sing it. And it amazes me, because they're saying that saves a wretch like me. Now, which person raised in a self-affirming, positive-thinking educational system learned that they were a wretch. And how many people actually think they are wretches? And yet they, they sing it. And I, I think there is something, I, I agree with you about the, the personal nature of it, but I think there is something about this hymn that is so universal in its kind of storyline 
that it, uh, it has an amazing impact. And I think uh, I, there's a lot of teachable moments when you know the New John Newton story. You know, for instance, you could simply ask, why did he call himself a wretch when people sing this song? And when you're in, particularly in a secular audience, and, and explain to them why he thought of himself as a wretch and who he was. Because you, when you think about it, he's probably the only person that could have written this song the way he wrote it. Because he knew what it was to be a, a wretch. Uh, and by the way, notice something else, though, too. Uh, if the song were written plural, then you'd resent the song because who has a right to tell me what snares I have? Yeah. Who has a right to tell me that I'm a wretch? And we've seen a lot of that in, the, in politics where, you, where you're going to call somebody else uh, something. But uh, so if the, if the song was uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Save a Wretch Like You. Uh, uh, <laughs> That, that doesn't, that in a sense isolates, and, but it also creates a resentment because you, uh, the, the songwriter now has assumed an authority he doesn't really have. And I think the reason the song is sung and, and, and you might say and uh, embraced uh, one uh, with people because uh, I can sing that and I don't feel I've been... I've been analyzed. I haven't been interpreted. See, it's the songwriter has interpreted himself, and then I join in. Yeah. I'd like just to touch briefly on, on uh, the, the nature of conversion as illustrated in, in John Newton's life. Because one of the things that surprises you about this story is he has this conversion experience really kind of earlier, and then continues his womanizing and and practicing witchcraft and gambling, and and he he uh, he he requires he has a chapel when he becomes the the captain of his own ship, and he leads a chapel, but as Aiken points out, he's still you know involved in a lot of kind of unchristian behavior, and um, and when Newton describes his marriage. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that Aitken says is for all the religious formality of John and Polly Newton's wedding, their marriage could not be described as a Christian union in its early stages. Newton said, at that time we knew not God, which is a really, as, as Aitken says, a surprising assertion since he was very devout in what he was reading and in his prayer life and in his discipline, the spiritual disciplines. It's and as you said, there came a later time where his conversion became uh, solid and he definitely turned a page. But one of the aspects that you learn about grace is it's not just the complete irreligious person that is capable of sin and needing God's grace. It's people who are themselves pursuing God who can still and that's why Paul's dance around, you know, we should not continue to sin that grace may abound. It's that, it's that double. What, what do we learn about the nature of conversion as process through this story of John Newton? Well, yeah, I think uh, it's true that the early, the early 
so-called, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call them the, the genuine sort of uh, cries for help. When he does cry for help, when he does, and he quotes, he just stumbles into that verse, uh, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, your heavenly Father will give good gifts to you if you ask for it. All right, now, that's true. And so he, in that moment of dire need, he asks for help. But you see, uh, there hasn't been, he hasn't got content with the, uh, with the cry for help. The cry for help, and, and God honors it. I mean, I believe he honors every cry that we give. But it, we need then to add content to the cry, content to the story. We need uh, the same thing that happens with he and Polly. They, he, he is, uh, they, they need to move f- from uh, just their relationship with each other. Then they need to discover uh, a, deeper, a deeper ground. And that deeper ground, that's where Wesley came in. Right. That's where George Whitfield came in. And that is where the sea captain he met in, in St. Critz came in, who was a godly man. By the way, that man also came back to Liverpool and joined right. in with, right. you know, that, you know this amazing thing about uh, Newton? Uh, he had so many wonderful people that did join in to help him stabilize his life. Totally. Because he was, you, you'd have to say there was a lot of chaos there oh, in that. Yeah. And so in the, even the, so the early part, you shouldn't be surprised that the early part of his, of his conversion journey is, has some of that same chaos. And it has to get stabled. And it, and it is true, that's the gift that, uh, Wesley and you know and the Charles Wesley his brother who wrote hymns too and these people's hymns Isaac Watts's hymns uh, and the teaching of the uh, uh, of the reformed faith the teaching of the Bible yeah. in his life began to stabilize and give him content to his faith well and it's wonderful to see how many people gave him a hand up that he didn't deserve yeah I mean early in his career for those of you that have read the book I mean he basically bit the hand that fed him multiple times and, and showed complete disrespect to people that were showing him respect and courtesy by even giving him another chance. <laughs> he, it's one of the things about his fallenness and his rebellious nature that is so profound. And yet people, many people, stepped in and gave him a second chance, another chance, including his father who on, on more than one occasion basically got his son a job and kept him employed so that he could turn his life around. And then yeah. in the same thing spiritually. He had so many people, like George Whitfield, went out of his way to spend time with him. Even though Whitfield was extraordinarily busy, when he visited Liverpool, he almost left early because he felt there was no hope for Liverpool. And yet meeting uh, John Newton... He had coffee with him. He had dinner with him. He, he, he had many, many people investing, and it's a, it's a great lesson about how God's grace works. And then, of course, it's through when, God, but it's also through us and the grace and forgiveness that we show other people. But I am grateful for this, that he doesn't stay a taker for the rest of his life. Absolutely. He's a taker in that early period, for sure. Right. Uh, then when he, when he does mature, and I guess we have to say this is a story of, that, that a person can mature. 
and they can grow up. Yeah. And when he does grow up, remember all these early periods that we were talking about, he is very young. He is 19 years old. He's then 22 years old in the first trip with, with the Greyhound. He's only 28 years old when he's a captain on the, on the Africa. Right. And so he is a very young, really un, uh, unfinished product. And when he does get mature, then he, look what he does with, with uh, Wilberforce. Wilberforce was sort of a, it's funny, when he met Wilberforce, he was a very wealthy, spoiled boy. And John Newton found that young man who just graduated from uh, Cambridge but was extremely wealthy and extremely uh, full of himself. And, and Newton mellowed him mm-hmm. and made Wilberforce the great influence he became right. uh, in, in, in the Christianity of, of England, too. And just what the same thing that Wesley had done to him. You know, I just, it, it endeared me reading this book, endeared me again to Charles Wesley and John Wesley. Right. The, the, they're the fathers of Methodism. But he, they were very good men. Yeah. And, you know, we owe such a debt to a men like that, that uh, and, and women, the women too that played a key role yeah. in, uh, in his life. Well, he definitely, having been the recipient of the grace that he was writing about, turned around and began extending it to others and, and, and became a mentor to, to so many. They took in many uh, waifs uh, in their house. In fact, I didn't point that out, that one of the reasons the, the Protestant League in Olney came by his house and threw bricks at his house was that they had taken a Catholic family into their house. Here he is in the manse of the Anglican church and they brought in a Catholic family that had been, I think their house had been burned out by rioters and they took them in and that's when the the Protestant League, I'm embarrassed to say, comes and says, are you for or against the Pope? See, they were going to say, you have to decide. You're either for or against the Pope. And then he gave his great answer. Well, it's I... very difficult for somebody that has sinned boldly to judge other people and, and to not extend grace. You know, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is when Lewis says um, that, that people who have uh, never tried to resist temptation know how strong it is. He said that's why bad people know very little about badness because they've lived a sheltered life by always giving into it, you know, and... and John Newton knew what it meant to sin and be attracted by the snares. And he extended that same awareness to other people. I want to... Yeah, he becomes extremely generous yeah. in the, uh, toward the end of his life. And, and well, to, in the mature period of his life, he becomes very generous toward people who are hurting. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that was what the Houses of Parliament caught. When here is this man who had been a slave captain is so uh, feeling such regret for what England has done and what he has done right. in, in that trade. And I think uh, uh, if you read uh, Between the Lines, when that pamphlet was read by everybody in Parliament, and, and then there were hearings, and he got to speak and, and told... Uh, and there, there was a kind of a generosity of spirit, though, that he had toward people that were hurting. Yeah. Uh, like in that, like imagine ha- using up his time also to work for the Catholic Relief 
uh, bill. Yeah. You, why is he working on the Catholic relief bill? Get the Catholics working on that. But he's working on the Catholic relief bill. Yeah. For any of you that have children or grandchildren that are not, shall we say, living up to their potential, this story is an amazing word of encouragement to never give up. As Earl often says, the last chapter has not been written. Because when you read about him, he seemed a hopeless case. And his mother, as Earl said, was the only person that saw any academic promise in him at all. And he really didn't come alive intellectually until, you know, he was on these ships. And he began reading like Euclid and all these Roman <laughs> historians and doing math. And he, he was just very precocious learner. But he had very little formal education and showed no promise of it. And he came out, it turned out, of course, to be this amazing person. I want us to touch briefly on the issue of slavery because a lot of people, uh, they've heard the kind of the glossed summary version of, of John Newton and think he had this conversion and then immediately came out against slavery. But in fact, in his own life, that wasn't the case. He became a Christian, became very devout, and continued to captain the, sh the ships uh, that were going to Africa to, to get these slaves. And Aiken says this about it. He said, Newton's lack of moral qualms about the slave trade merely showed that he was a young man of his time and that he accepted the prevailing standards and attitudes of mid-18th century England. It was a harshly materialistic society in which the interests of commerce drowned the voices of conscience. The thing that haunts me about that aspect of this story is it gives us pause for thought about what are we blind to? You know, what are we accepting as the way things are uh, that we really don't recognize? We do it in our own lives. Like Nathan, the prophet, had to kind of let David know how God felt about his adultery and murder of Uriah. And, and you know, David is very self-righteous when he hears the the, the, a parable of an evil man until Nathan says, thou art the man. He didn't see it. And it's, it's kind of a frightening thing to realize that we corporately and individually can be in the midst of great injustice and really not see it or just accept it. It makes me wonder, what are the issues in our age that we're blind to? Yeah. Because aren't there such issues in almost yeah. every age? Yeah. That we have recorded in faith history. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in the early American experience, that's one of the reasons I, I really think this is a great book for every uh, American to read is the Hamilton book. Because Hamilton was one of the only of the, of the fathers. Uh, and, and Abigail Adams, the wife of John Adams, they were the two anti-slavery voices. But, you know, they, they were still talking about slaves as property. Uh, the property of people, and and the American Revolution, uh, there were humane, uh, there were many humane people uh, that uh, regretted the inhumanity of, of slavery. George Washington was one of them, mm -hmm. and George Washington is one of the only ones that, in his will, uh, released all his slaves and also gave them property. Uh, not Jefferson. Jefferson didn't, but Washington did. Yeah. And, and, of course, Abigail Adams had n wanted nothing to do with slavery. But, so it was really uh, 
a few people were ahead of their time, and Alexander Hamilton was one of those who was ahead of his time. And uh, it's very moving in this book to read about him and to read about his wife, because after his untimely death being shot in the duel, his wife, and you know, I'm so pleased with this, this book that they track his wife all the way to the end of her life. She lived way into the 19th century, and that was, uh, 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 um, what's her first name again? I, Polly? <laughs> not Polly, that, that's John Newton. Oh, but, you're back uh, to Hamilton. Yeah, Hamilton's wife uh, lives way into the 19th century as a very godly, and the, as the writer says, a very evangelical, godly woman. And she was involved with the orphanages and things like this. But uh, so we are grateful for people that do see. But it is true that culture can blind you and you don't see things. Mm -hmm. And you need to have, there's where the, the biblical witness sometimes will come and hit you afresh in a brand new way. And uh, uh, then, you, then you're able to see it. Well, it's a clear justice issue, and I'm afraid we have many in contemporary life. I'm, I'm really taken back by the uh, applicability of a harshly materialist society in which the interest of commerce drown out the voices of conscience. Sound familiar? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a wake-up call. Uh, this is Dick Staub. We're going to be back with more of the Kindling's Views with Earl Palmer, and we'll get to the audience's questions right after this, so don't go away. Well, welcome back to the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. This is Dick Staub, your host, and now we head into that exciting part of our evening where uh, the audience begins to share some of their questions, and we've got some great ones tonight, so we're going to get right at it. And uh, I believe it's Dave who is going to start us off with a question that kind of piggytails, piggybacks on what we piggytails. Uh, I am on medication. Uh, on this issue of justice. Hi, thanks. Um, so uh, you say that there is injustice in society, and that is true. It's also true that we are blind to it. Um, how can we open our eyes and that of the society around us? Yeah, how, how do, our eyes, do our eyes get opened? Uh, you know, uh, it seems to me that the best opening is when you have a good diet of uh, a, a diet of good news, a diet of of God's uh, uh, you might say God of God's good news toward us and and His blessing toward us and His uh, high regard for us that that then enables us to see the value and the and the, uh, the precious nature of, of those who are around us. And that, from that positive ground, you then are able to see the negative when it encroaches in. And when it becomes, or when a, a, a side truth becomes toxic. For example, uh, take it our Lord's ministry. The, uh, 
he has a people, the, uh, the, the Pharisee movement, are very concerned about truth, and they're concerned about law. But they have, they have done something to law. They have specialized it in terms of, of, of you might say, uh, legal specialties. And so that in, the, in our Lord's ministry, so many of the arguments have to do with the proper observance of the Sabbath day. And, and so that finally our, Jesus has to challenge them on whether the, uh, the observance of, of a law like you shall work on the Sabbath day is now being trivialized and becoming toxic instead of uh, healthy. Uh, for, and one, one example was when a man was lame and, uh, and carried his bed, and they criticized uh, because he, he carried the bed having been healed uh, on the Sabbath day. And then Jesus has to challenge uh, his listeners. Is it, is, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil? And then uh, when he does good on the Sabbath, then... Uh, uh, that goodness is the bigger truth, and the 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 Sabbath uh, observance is the lesser truth, and the lesser truth should not overwhelm the greater truth. The same thing is true with regard to uh, other uh, truths or uh, traditions that that are valid until they become. Uh, until they become uh, major when they should be secondary. And so it's keeping uh, secondary truths as secondary and primary truths as primary. So that uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength and mind and your neighbor as yourself. The neighbor as yourself becomes a major truth. And Jesus makes that a major truth because it comes right out of the fact that we love God and our neighbor God gave us that command. And so then, now we can, we can evaluate whether we're loving our neighbor with the grace that we receive. Beloved, let us love one another. It isn't, we're not just challenged to love one another. We ourselves experience love and now share that love with others around you. So it's, uh, it's not that we uh, originate the love, but notice, it's a, a way of learning about love from its source, from the positive source moving out. And I think that is the, that's the best way to learn ethical norms, to move from the grand truth outward and see how it begins to spell out. And, uh, and then sometimes maybe a law, uh, uh, a small law is broken, but a greater truth is, uh, is honored. And I think that's what Jesus does when he, you might say sometimes he deliberately uh, breaks the Sabbath law because to show that a greater truth mm -hmm. uh, needs to win over a lesser truth. You know, I love that question, and I had a conversation with a, a really bright, intelligent, articulate, thoughtful friend this week who is despairing about the lack of rational dialogue in our culture today. And and when you come to issues of justice or what seems to us to be common sense issues or self-evident issues, like that's how Wilberforce, that was so maddening to Wilberforce was that as he made his case, he's, he couldn't see that there was any case against it, you know, other than commercial self-interest. 
And um, I've really been thinking about what our role is and how we can be effective in our own culture. And I think about, I was taken by Whitfield and Wesley and these people of great conviction who articulated it very clearly, but there was also a kind of a spiritual integrity to them that, that carried their argument beyond the rational. And, and I'm taken by Jesus' phrase uh, that I will send the comforter and the comforter will convict the world of sin. And I feel, as somebody who spent a good deal of my life trying to build bridges and create dialogue between people, that there are many ways in which we've reached a place where at least one of the major endeavors that we need to be embarking on is prayer that the Holy Spirit will convict people because we can't do it. And that should be obvious by now. Uh, Bob, what's your question? Uh, yeah, I, my question is, Newton refers to a wretch like me. Do you think he was referring to his general life or a specific act? For instance, the Apostle Paul, when he said that he was the chief among sinners, he referred to his persecution of the early church as a kind of specific act. Do, do you have any comment, Bill? Well, yeah, he chose a very harsh word. Uh, and... And, you know, a lot of people say, well, couldn't we soften that and, and rewrite the song a little bit and saved a, um, a, a person like me or saved a, uh, uh, a wayward person like me? But he, he decided to use a very strong and, and harsh word. Uh, you might say it's overstated, but in a way, it's how he felt that uh, he, he felt that uh, he had done... Uh, deplorable things that needed to be just called for what they were. And that's why in the second stanza of his hymn, he starts out with, grace taught my heart to fear. And that fear comes when I realize how, how much harm I've done. If, if you get an insight into how much harm, uh, like even bad language does on another person, or how much harm an illegal... Uh, act that I did cause, then wretch begins to make sense because it means helpless. Uh, there's a kind of helplessness in wretch, but it also means uh, that it's, it, it is really bad. And, and yet God saved me. And, he, and that grace, and that's why he calls it amazing grace. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved, that was able to make safe and salvage, you know the word safe, soter in Greek, means two things, to salvage, but it also means to make safe. And he makes me safe, but he also salvages. And that means he heals. And that healing, uh, wretch is probably a good word. It'd be, in, in other words, in, it's using like the strongest medical term you, can, you can, can use for a wound and saying now, can that wound be healed? And that's why I think he probably uses that strong word. Hmm. Alan, what's your question? Um, I noticed that you had um, in your list of key figures um, this great poet, I think it might be pronounced Cooper, William Cooper. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because we didn't yeah. get to that earlier. 
Why, now, I didn't go into the story, but there's a whole chapter, two chapters in the book, really dealing with that, that gentleman. He was a poet, and, but a very uh, uh, a needy, needy man. And there's an example of the, of the, uh, the household, and you have to give credit to Polly, again, as well as to uh, John Newton, that they welcomed this hurting man. He, by the way, he did commit suicide. And uh, that, they did everything they could to keep him going. And he was so depressed. And he was very, uh, very talented. He wrote, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He wrote a number of, of great hymns. And uh, he participated actually like an, a non-paid assistant to John Newton. But finally he had, uh, had no place to live. And so they simply took him in and they, he lived with them, and he wrote some, uh, he was a, a, he's a formidable poet. In fact, in English books of poetry, he's listed as one of the prominent English poets. Uh, and John Newton, that was an example of the generosity of Newton bringing this really hurting guy. He did not have social skills, he was not able to relate very well with other people, but he had this amazing ability to, to, to write poems and hymns, and he did with John Newton. They wrote a number of hymns together. They produced a hymn book. And yes, they together produced the hymn book that was used all over England. Hmm. Shannon, what's your question? What are the enthusiasts, and what about them was a potential impediment to John Newton possibly being ordained? Yeah, the, well, you know, it's kind of humorous when you think of it that the uh, the Church uh, of England uh, in that day with this movement that is being born coming out of the Church of England. Remember, John Wesley was a, a, a Church of England pastor. Uh, and he comes out of that. But then he, uh, as he said, my heart was strangely warmed with the Moravians, these uh, non-denominational uh, you might say, free church folks that he met in Holland and other places. And he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And he uh, came back to England with, uh, as an evangelist, and, and, and a tremendous number of people responded. And it kind of scared the established church. That, and it was sort of like charismatic movements sometimes scare established churches. And... And maybe that's what happened. It, it, it was, so they, had the, they came up with this word. They were called enthusiasts. That's a wonderful word. And, uh, but you'd think, now, that you should be complimenting John Newton. He's an enthusiast. But they said, that's, what they, that's the actual term that was used. And we don't know if we want these enthusiasts to get into the church. And that's why he had a hard time. Getting, by the way, here's a funny thing. He got into the church because a friend of the bishop was a duke, and he was a member of the House of Lords, and a very wealthy man. In fact, he was Secretary of State under King George III at one point, this duke. His name was the Duke of Dartmouth, and he was very, very wealthy. And he actually established a college in the United States that is, has his name to this day, Dartmouth. And he found, and, and, and you know, 
talk about a close call for Newton. When Newton was having these troubles with the people like that wanted to burn him when he got, uh, he was being accused of being pro-Catholic and stuff like that, uh, the Duke of Dartmouth tried to get him to go to America because he was going to start another college in Savannah, Georgia. This is before the Revolutionary War. And he wanted Newton to go over there and be, because he had already started Dartmouth College. And this, he's a wonderful evangelical Christian, the Duke of Dartmouth. And he was an enthusiast too. And, and been influenced by Wesley. But, but he loved John Newton. And, and as a matter of fact, that's how John Newton was able to get accepted by the bishop because the Duke of, of Dartmouth vouched for him and said, listen, uh, you uh, make him a bishop, make him a, a priest, and I'll get a house for him to, to live in in Olney. And so that's what he did. And so, so we owe a debt often to... Uh, in fact, I was struck with this, how many people played a role. We may have never had Amazing Grace or may have never had this anti-slavery movement succeed if he had actually gone off to Savannah, you know, and started another college in America. And, uh, but you know, uh, he didn't. He stayed at his post. He felt he had to stay at his post there in Olney. And so the Duke of Dartmouth said, okay, I'm, I'm for it. And so he stayed there. And uh, we're grateful for that Duke who did that. But he, it is true that it, the, the enthusiast part is, is because he was uh, in that warmth of the Wesleyan movement. Yeah. The Wesleyan movement had a wonderful warmth about it. If you want to know the warmth, listen to the songs of Charles Wesley that were, uh, you know, written by John Wesley's brother. But I appreciate that clarification because today we might think of his enthusiast as kind of an anti-intellectual holy roller. Uh, but these were intellectually credible people. Wesley and yeah. George Whitfield. I think I mentioned one time that Whitfield spoke to 10,000 people on the Boston Commons without amplification. And uh, Ben Franklin made the trip from Philadelphia to hear him and said, I would travel a thousand miles just to hear George Whitfield say the word Mesopotamia because he had such amazing diction. Yes. And uh, so th these guys were big players intellectually and with their spiritual fervor. That's right. It's That's common right. I think of Earl actually in this regard, not to embarrass him, but kind of warm heart, active mind is that combination. And, yeah. and that's what these guys were. Corinne, what's your question? Oh, Earl, I was interested in John Newton's family. After his conversion and his success with Parliament, were they appreciative? And was there reconciliation with both his mother and father? Did they live to see his... Uh, yeah, I, you know, I must admit, I don't know whether his father was still alive by the time uh, we get to the beginning of the, of the 1803 uh, uh, Parliament Acts. His father had died before that. Yeah, his father had yeah. died. But his father, you know, and I, I'm kind of sorry that I didn't, I left his father a little bit stranded there with, with that severe uh, appraisal of this strict father. But, you know... He also must have mellowed because he does rescue his son. And I thank God for even narrow-minded fathers that cause their sons to rebel. And, I mean, you couldn't rebel any more than this boy rebelled against his father and just went absolutely in the opposite direction. And yet his father came through and rescued him, had to even kidnap him from that 
a river trader who had made him a slave and uh, was really beating him up in prison, put him in an in a, in a iron cage every night. That's where he slept. And, uh, you know, it, with all those snakes and everything in Africa, and, uh, but that's where he was put. And then his father heard about it and then got some of his seagoing sea guys to say, well, let's hire a, a gang to go in and get him. And they did. They went in and rescued him. And, but, you know, his father was uh, uh, there for him as best he could be. Uh, but uh, we don't even know. I, I don't know whether his father was a believer. Uh, his, his mother died when he was in his early teens, I think. And his father died, but the book does point out that they had quite warm correspondence and were kind of looking forward to a reunion and he got the news that his father had died when I think he was on his last ship back. But, so, but his father did, was aware that he was turning his life around. It's a great question. Yeah, that was a good question, yeah. Uh, Tim, what's your question? Okay, so I'm thinking of uh, the uh, pastor who was down at St. Croix uh, talking to Newton about the evils of slavery and what scriptures would you use in teaching the evils of slavery. Yeah. The, uh, well, all of those marvelous texts that have to do with our dignity before God and that God is no respecter of persons and that we are, uh, there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. And, as, and you know also, it's very interesting that the early church had the institution of slavery was a part of the Roman world and a part of the Roman Empire. And that the uh, that one of the great letters of St. Paul's, the letter to Philemon, uh, uh, who was a friend of his who had a slave that had run away, and then Paul f met the slave. Did you know that Paul had great success with slaves uh, in sharing the good, the good news? Because in the Roman world of Paul's time, almost all the school teachers, the teachers of youth, were slaves that had been captured and then uh, indentured and then became property of wealthy people and then they would be the ones that would train their children and Lou and so Paul was very uh, made a great effort with slaves and we know it because so many of the names for instance in the book of Romans when there's that long list of names at the last chapter uh, we know the names that are slave names because some the names were only used for slaves and one of those names was Onesimus because that is a, a name used for slaves and the Onesimus in Greek means useful. Okay, you're useful. If you're, uh, you know, the, uh, that little, uh, the little Thomas train uh, set for kids, they use that, that was, that guy must have known a little about it, Greek because he has, uh, that's what the, the owner of the train honors uh, Thomas or all these little trains. You're a useful train. That's Onesimus. And you know, Paul, writes a letter to Philemon about his runaway slave, and now he does a play on words. He says, formerly he was useless to you, a play on the word useful, because he ran away. Now he's more useful than ever, because he's a brother now, not a slave. And so he says, and if he owes you anything, put it to my account. I, Paul, promise I'll pay you. 
And then, but Paul being, uh, have no uh, shortage of ego strength, to say nothing of you owing everything to me. <laughs> but there you see St. Paul working to, to liberate uh, from this terrible institution of slavery, this man Onesimus. And, but the play on words, formerly, you know, his name useful, no, he was useless as a slave. He's useful now because he's, a, he's, a, he's your brother in Christ. And you know, uh, we know that one of the things the early church did, and a lot of people aren't aware of this, but one of the benevolent things that the early church did, we have records of this, is they would go to slave markets and buy slaves out of slavery. Uh, they, they weren't revolutionaries that went and tried to destroy the Roman Empire so they wouldn't have slaves. They instead went into that, the marketplaces and would uh, endeavor to buy out of slavery uh, people and set them free. In fact, the word ransom, where it's used for our Lord's redemption for us, is a word that is used to buy out of slavery, ransom, to ransom someone out of slavery. Mm. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I would just say the letters of St. Paul... And, and, of course, our Lord's uh, uh, high value given to the, the worth of a human being. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're glad that Shirley is with us tonight. And we're going to take time for one more question. Shirley, what's your question? Well, I get, I get the impression that John Newton was looking for something and looking for help. So I want to ask you... Um, if he wasn't looking, would Grace have found him? Wow. Uh, you know. And thank think, you again for that you know, question, no, Shirley. I, think, you I know, love Stump the Husband questions. You know, I think we have as many stories in the New Testament of people that weren't looking and are found as those who were looking and, and find. Uh, because... Uh, Grace is able to find us, and it find, it, grace finds us in, in remarkable ways. It finds us sometimes by uh, frightening experience, like uh, almost a shipwreck. Uh, the, the, there's nothing bad about being a foxhole Christian. That's not bad at all. Uh, and that means that in the midst of a great dire moment, you decided to reach out for help, and, and you made your best move you could make and asked for help. And... Uh, and I believe that that is where you are reaching out and are, and are searching and are trying to find. And I believe everyone is reaching out and searching uh, in ways that they're not even aware of. Sometimes uh, wild behavior is really a reach out for help sometimes, a reach out for answers, a reach out for meaning. But it is true that when everything is said and done, you've got two great realities together. And that there's a... a there is the whosoever will may come, the one who, who is searching can find. See, ask and it will be given to you. And then the other half, uh, you did not seek me, I found you. Uh, uh, the gospel comes to you first and it finds you. And that is God, the, the searcher, yeah. the one who finds us. You Which know, is... you, you think on Christmas morning, the wise men were searching for light. The shepherds were just trying to keep warm at night out in the field. And the angel found them. Yeah. And both are valid. Yeah, when Wilberforce was asked by William Pitt, so how was it, and he said this sarcastically, that God found, that you found God. 
And Wilberforce said, well, uh, it wasn't so much that I found God, it was that he found me. And it does go both ways. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, almost the last words ever spoken by John Newton conveyed the essence of the spirituality that made him such an effective communicator. I am a great sinner, said the dying Newton, but Christ is a great savior. What a great epitaph. This is Dick Staub. Thank you for joining us at the Kindling Views at Earl Palmer Ministries. Thank you.